Nehemiah chapter 6. There are no more gaps in the walls of the city. And it's a, it's a wonderful point we are reaching in the restoration of the city of God. But we might think, will the enemies of God give up? Well, they think, well, all the weaknesses in, uh, in their defenses are gone. The doors are yet to be put up. But God's people are in a position of strength. And there's even godly rule in the city under Nehemiah. We might think, as God's people, that the enemies will give up. They can't possibly persist in their attacks over and over again. Unfortunately, this is not the case. There will be. And God's enemies are persistent. And there are things we learn in these waves of attack. We learn about the enemy himself. We learn about the importance of the work in which we're involved in. Uh, We learn also about the dangers of ungodly fear, as we're going to see as we read this text. And we learn what will glorify God in this world. So let us read God's holy word in Nehemiah chapter 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem... And Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way. And I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intended to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to those reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, 
No such things as you say have been done. For you are inventing them out of your own mind. They all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went up to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mahatabel, who was confined into his house, he said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalot had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day on the month Elul, in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations about us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem. For they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to, the, to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Ara, And his son, Johanan, had taken the daughter of Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word. Our text again for this evening will be that chapter, Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. There is new management in the city of God in Judah. And there's great blessings for God's people. And new leadership, godly leadership, it can make such a difference, can't it? Brings such life to a place. But there are further attacks from the enemies of God to consider here this evening during Nehemiah's time. And as we think about these attacks, how did they come? And where did they come to? And thinking also of how these come from the enemies of our, the enemy of our soul, Satan himself. What will bring the greatest hurt, the greatest damage to the city of God at this point in time? With things going well, 
Again, new leadership. No gaps in the walls. Things have improved greatly. But at the same time, there is now a massive bullseye, or you could say crosshairs, on the leadership of Judah. On the instrument God has used to bless Judah. There is the greatest targeting. Godly leadership, I hate to say it, should expect this bullseye on their back. The devil would love to bring down godly leadership. Godly leadership is often the focal point of the attacks of the enemy. Godly leadership in the schools is targeted. Godly leadership in the media is targeted. Godly leadership in the home is targeted. In the church, it is targeted. The enemy employs schemes, deceptions, lies, slanders, anything that will achieve his ends. Our title this evening is A Conspiracy Against God's City. A Conspiracy Against God's City. And what is a conspiracy? It is to agree by oath, covenant or otherwise, to commit a crime. To commit a crime. Here we're talking about sin. Here we're talking about a crime against God. Is it just those strange views on the internet when we think of the word conspiracy? Or do we think of movies? Well, we might have heard the term, or is it a reality spoken about in God's word? We saw it as a reality spoken about in the first few verses of Psalm chapter 2. The nations joining together. This is something the Bible speaks of. And lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Verse 11. Our first point here this evening. The plots of the wicked. The plots of the wicked. Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall. And that there were no breaks left in it. Though at that time I had not hung the doors in the gates, the Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. Here, from our text, we notice this is an intent of evil. There is not good motivation on the part of Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab. But it's not obvious, is it, from the way they present it? Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. And if you just knew that alone, it doesn't look bad. It might even look quite friendly. Come, let us meet together. But there is a hidden 
intent of evil, a hidden intent of evil. Now, this does not mean that we should be mistrusting of everybody. That would not be healthy. Or anybody who is an unbeliever, say we have a nice unbelieving neighbor. This does not mean we think the worst of them in all cases. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 5 tells us love thinks no evil. Or another way of saying that is love does not keep account of evil. However, I must say this, we must not be naive. We must not be naive. To be naive means we trust almost anything people say without further scrutiny. This typically happens in people when they maybe lack experience, lack of wisdom. We must realize that the enemy will at times present themselves in a positive way. The enemy will present themselves as friendly. That can happen. The enemy will at times pretend to help. Pretend that they want to help. Now sometimes the Lord in his providence. I'm sure you've heard testimonies like this. Enemies will come to a meeting of God's people. And get wonderfully converted. They sought out to do something Wicked at that meeting. But the Lord changed their hearts. This can happen. But we must also realize. That sometimes. This can be the case. The claims of the enemy. Do they deserve trust? Unquestioned trust. Or healthy skepticism. Sometimes as Christians. We can fear any level. Of skepticism. Sometimes it is wrong to be skeptical. We should not be skeptical of the claims of the Bible, for example. We should not be skeptical of those who say God is powerful over every element of the universe. He is powerful over these things. But we must be skeptical of mere men who seek to do damage and harm. Not every offer of help is truly help. And here in our text, there's an evil intent, a hidden evil intent, because their father is the devil. For no wonder, we read in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15, for no wonder for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing of his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. No wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. He, we, we get these images, don't we, of the devil and the works of the devil being ugly and clearly evil on the surface. But this is not the way the Bible presents it at all. He presents himself as an angel of light. In the Garden of Eden when he deceived Adam and Eve. It was presented as something good. You shall know good and evil. Wouldn't you want to know something God is keeping back from you? It is always presented in the sense of being beneficial to you. The wicked masquerade or hide their true intentions. It says in Matthew chapter 10 verse 
16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We need to be wise as serpents. Wise as serpents. But also have the gentleness and the harmlessness of doves. Returning to our text It says in verse 2 that Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. Then down to verse 4. But they sent me this message four times. And I answered them in the same way. See the persistence. See the, the, the perseverance. The consistency of the enemy, you could say. Hard-working, tenacious. How often have we maybe commented that when you see cults or people who do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, do not believe that He is true God, true man, and we, we, we marvel at the work rate, don't we, sometimes? If only we had an, an element of that work rate. But the enemies of God, hardworking, tenacious. And this is against the leadership, against Nehemiah, over and over again. Pestering, you could say, four times. The same answer is given four times. And this is where often leadership will face the greatest challenges. Persistence of the enemy. And the enemy may come back to you with the same thing again and again. But friends, don't think just because you are not in leadership of some kind. That the enemy would not like to distract you from the work. Would not like to bring you away from this great work. And we all, as God's people, play some part In that great work. It's not just the leadership. As important as they are. To come away from the work. In order to do you harm. That's what he's seeking to do. Come away from what you're doing. It's not nearly as important. Have fun with this sort of thing. This is what the devil does time and time again. To bring you away from good work. To bring you to bad. To bring you away from perhaps even good friends. And bring you over to bad friends. We think of. The young people here, the friends you make, are so important. And what distractions are there in the world today? There are the, and I say this very loose, innocent ones, and ones we would think is innocent, like sports coming into the Lord's Day. This is still sinful. This is still wrong. But doesn't it come in more and more? There is the distraction in our pockets with our phones with some useful things you know the apps to understand the bible and things like this but there are also the horrors on the internet the horrors of the internet more than distractions they are slave masters slave masters robbing you of joy in Christ for the believer and further enslaving you if you're an unbeliever if you haven't yet trusted in Jesus Christ The enemy presents something as promising help. But it really is lies. In verse 8 of our text. Then I sent to him saying. No such things as you are, you are saying are being done. 
but you invent them in your own heart. There's all these rumors and lies being spread around. But the enemy presents something that is not true. He will seek to harm you in distracting you from the work. He will seek to distract and harm your family and above all else, the city of God. Ultimately, the city of God is the one that is under attack. And this is why Nehemiah is being targeted. For the enemy hates Christ. The plots of the wicked. Now we're going to look at the portion of the wise. The portion of the wise, number two. In all this persistence and deception that surrounds Nehemiah and the city of God. What keeps him close to the work? Now we can think about, yes, the power of God. God keeps him close to the work of the city. And he sees that it is a good work. But that is the thing. He sees it is a good work. It is a great work, in fact. What prevents us from leaving the work for the lies of the enemy? And the lies of the enemy in this fallen world... The old man that we have is tempting, isn't it? A great work to work in this city. Verse 3 says this. So I send messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? A great work. Nehemiah has the wisdom to see that what he is doing is so important it cannot be set aside for the deceptive ends of those seeking to do him harm. He sees his inheritance, his portion is in the Lord. He sees his inheritance, his portion is in the city of God. Now this ultimately is pointing towards the great heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal city of where we will be home forever and ever one day. But his inheritance, his portion is with God's city and with God himself. It says in Psalm 119 verse 57, you are my portion, O Lord. And that word can also be, understand, you are my inheritance. You are Mine, O Lord. You are my future. And this we can think of in terms of farming. Farms which go from generation to generation. Land worked on by your fathers and grandfathers. Farming is one of the most challenging and physically and mentally challenging jobs. I only know really parts of that from dear friends of mine. One of the most dangerous and challenging jobs you can have. No doubt, you know, with all the jobs you can do today, with all the other working offices and other things like that, nothing wrong with those jobs, of course. But with all the other options, there's no doubt temptation to leave that portion, to leave that inheritance passed on from generation to generation. And there's a kind of call to this vital work in a community. Now, imagine all the farms and the farming is taken out of a community. You'll see the value of it pretty quickly. 
the blessings to the environment and other things around the area. They see these challenges, but they stay and they persevere in that work. And they put one foot in front of the other. They see the importance of the work. And they see the sacrifices of those who went before them. They know the importance of this inheritance and they want to pass it on to the next generation. Not everyone is gifted to be a lifelong farmer. But if we are part of this city of God, we are gifted in different ways. Not everyone's the same. To work in the city of God. We are gifted, all of us, in different ways for this inheritance in Jesus Christ. Because our eyes have been opened to the value of the work. Our eyes have been opened to the value of that portion. Of that great work. And if you see the importance of the work, you will not leave. You will not leave. No matter who comes. No matter the challenges. No matter the struggles. You will not leave. Now let me qualify that as well. I, need to, I think I need to qualify this a little bit more. You may struggle. You may backslide. You may wander from God. All of these are possible. You may fall into the worst sins and still be a genuine Christian. But the Lord will bring you back. This, this wandering will not be forever. You will come back to your home. And though it will be painful... And though it will be hard, you will come back because this is your home. The church of God. God will bring you back. Because he loves you. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And he will chasten you because he loves you. And that we work hard, don't we? For this inheritance. We work hard to teach our children in the next generation of the need for Christ. So that this inheritance, this portion, will be passed on from generation to generation. And not just this generation would do the work. And see this as a great work. That your children and your children's children would also see that it is a great work. That cannot be abandoned. It cannot be left behind. (coughs) Nehemiah sees the impossibility of leaving the city of God. In verse 11 of Nehemiah chapter 6, Nehemiah is responding to a man who is claiming to be a prophet. Now he discerns and sees that this man is not sent by God. And here's how he responds in verse 11 to this man. Verse 11 it says this, and I said, Should such a man as I flee? Uh, this prophet is trying to make him afraid and trying to get him to leave the work. Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Basically, I won't leave this work. And I will not send fear among those who look up to me. Those who are led by me. Verse 12, he says, he perceives that God had not sent him because of the message that this false prophet had. Nehemiah sees the impossibility of leaving the city of God. He knows he he should not leave this work because he is wise and this is wisdom that comes from God. He is a prayerful 
men. Not everyone claiming to be sent by God, not everyone claiming to be helping the church, helps the church. Not everyone who openly says, I believe this, this, and this, truly believes this. You shall know them by their fruits. And yes, give the benefit of the doubt. But there are times when people, the testimony, the way they live their life, is a complete rejection of anything they profess to believe. The enemies of God are cunning. The enemies of God are deceptive. And without this wisdom from God, you will leave the work. This wisdom comes from God in Jesus Christ that you would hear his voice. Number three now, the paralysis of the worried. The paralysis of the worried. So we've looked at the plots of the wicked, the portion of the wise. And number three now, the paralysis of the worried. Paralysis is when you you can't move. You can't move. And this is out of fear. And what are the enemies of God using in our text in Nehemiah chapter 6? They are using fear. They are praying on anxieties and worry to take people from the, from the work of God. In Nehemiah chapter 6 verses 5 to 7. This is what was sent by Sanballat. Verse 5. Then Sanballat sent his servant to me as before. The fifth time with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations. And Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, there is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Sambalad is spreading rumors, rumors to make the people afraid and worried, especially Nehemiah, especially Nehemiah. We often fear, don't we, what people will think of us. We often fear what people will think of us when we share the gospel with them. Or what they will think of us if they believe such a rumor. In verse 6. We can think of rumors that are being spread today. Against godly servants. Perhaps even on the internet. Verse 6. It says this. In it it was written. It is reported among the nations. Among the unbelievers. Among the heathen. Uh, and Geshem says that you and the, the, the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. Now, rumors here, they sound, in a way, they sound possible, don't they? Well, Nehemiah has just become governor, hasn't he? Perhaps he wants to rebel, cast off the yoke of the Persian Empire, and rule himself, establish the kingdom once again. Something close enough to the truth. Something that sounds believable. The key to being discerning is often not just the difference between right and wrong. Between what is clearly wrong and what is clearly right is often the difference between right 
and almost right. Spurgeon said it this way, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Almost right is still wrong. Why spread these rumors in the first place? Why spread them at all? It's it's to harm the enemy. It is a tactic of war to spread rumors about the enemy. We see it today, don't we? Um, You know, with the Ukraine and Russia. And there's reports of lots of fake news being spread around. It's very hard to know what to believe at times. This happens in times of war. This is spread in order to harm the enemy, cause confusion among the enemy. In verse 9 of our text, it tells us this, For they all were trying to make us afraid, saying their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. It will not be done. Speaking of Shemaiah the false prophet, who is spoken about there in verse 10, of his working with the wicked in the plot. It says this in verses 13 and 14. For this reason he was hired. This is Shemaiah. For this reason he was hired. That I should be afraid and act that way in sin. So that they might have cause for an evil report. That they might reproach me. My God remember Tobiah and Sambalot according to their works. And the prophetess Noadiah. And the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. So fear and anxiety. To scare people. To make them worried. Is a tactic of the enemy. They want, the enemy wants you afraid. The enemy wants you scared. Why? Verse 9 once again. It weakens the hands. It weakens the hands. Literally that's in the Hebrew. But another way of saying weaken of the hands. It's kind of a a Hebrew idiom of discouragement. Discouragement. What happens when we're discouraged? What happens when we don't feel very motivated to do something? Everything we're trying to do just seems heavier and more difficult. Why? Because our hands are weak and the strength leaves us. Hands are needed for the work. And when you are, we are discouraged, this is what they seek to do, are we more likely or less likely to do the work? They want, the enemy wants you discouraged. The enemy wants you confused. The enemy wants you afraid. And we need God to strengthen our hands, don't we? We need God to strengthen our hands. That we would continue the work. That this conspiracy against the city of God would fail. And we would learn to trust him more. Verse 19 says this. Also they reported his good deeds before me. And reported my words. Tobias sent letters to frighten me. To frighten me. We need, dear friends, the fear of God. And that fear is a fear that will drive out the fear of man. And the fear that the enemy would seek to put into our hearts. Our final point, the proof of the witness. So we've looked at the plots of the wicked the portion of the wise, the paralysis of the worried, and finally, number four, the proof 
of the witness. The proof of the witness. So often, the world wants us really to give up. Stop doing what you're doing. It doesn't matter if we put the word Christian out there. It doesn't matter what we may say to believe. They want us to stop the work of the kingdom. This is what the world wants. So that they can say this. Aha. I knew it. You're not a Christian. The world loves to find professing Christians who do just what everybody else does. Years ago I worked in a betting office. Not something I'm proud about. But this is before I was a Christian. And there was a Roman Catholic priest who used to come in to our betting office. People would think that was wonderful. Why? Just removes the guilt. Oh, he's just, he's just like us. The world wants anybody who claims to be a Christian and to say, Aha, I knew it wasn't real. I knew what you were claiming to believe was false all along. In the midst of plots and agreement among the wicked to harm God's city. What will show the world what we believe is true? What's going to show the world? In a very open and, and great testimony that God's, that this witness, what we're witnessing to believe, what we're pointing towards is true and real. And it is not just something we're coming to do twice on a Sunday. It is not just something for the Sabbath day. It is for every part of our lives. What will show? What is the proof to the world? Verses 15 and 16. So the walls, so the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it. And all the nations around us saw these things. That they were very disheartened in their own eyes. For they perceived that the work, that this work was done by our God. This work was done by our God. The enemies of God saw this. The enemies of God, they tried everything possible and they failed. And they're discouraged in their efforts to do this. Yet God's people persevere and keep going. They finish the work together as one. Working together as one is such a powerful proof to this fallen world that what we profess to believe is true. That what we profess to believe is true. Jesus prayed this in John 17. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. That they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. That the world may believe that you sent me. There's something so powerful about Christian unity working together. And in the face of opposition and in the face of challenge, they persevere. There's something so powerful about some of the most hardest things you'll ever go through. And the world will say, how, how can you deal with such tragedy? How can you deal with such bereavement? How can you deal with such struggles? And they see Christian communities coming together, supporting one another. It is the greatest time 
of witness. And it will make them doubt what they doubt. It will make them question what they've been rejecting. And I think it is one of the things that has hurt the church in the West so much. We're so divided. And it ought to break our hearts. I know I haven't been a Presbyterian very long. But four years I've been convinced of Presbyterian convictions. But I never want to get comfortable with the idea that there's different denominations and we're all broken in pieces. I don't like that. The world may believe that you have sent me. And we need to seek for true unity in the gospel, the true gospel. Not with everybody who claims to believe the gospel, but the truth. And there are times when we can't unify because that would mean compromise. That's not good either. But we must, as much as possible, be unified before the world. There will be challenges. As there was in the days of Nehemiah, in this chapter, there's challenges. Things that will push us to the nth degree. Things that will challenge our character within God's city. And in all these challenges, there's two options before you, isn't there? Do you trust the words of the enemy? Do you trust the lies of the serpent using instruments to cause harm and division in God's city? Or will we listen to the words of a sweet and beloved friend, the Lord Jesus Christ? Will we see that we are part of a great work, a work so Special and wonderful. We are privileged. And we're so privileged. We feel bad for those people. Don't we? Who attack us. Because they're blind. They're blind to their need of Christ. Do not. Friends. Do not join in this conspiracy against Christ. There are two sides in this war. There are two sides in this conflict. The victorious side in Jesus Christ. And the losing side in the serpent. And that losing side will spend an eternity in hell. And I don't want any one person here to leave this room without trusting in Jesus Christ. And being victorious in him. Don't join with the enemy. Seek the Lord. Well, he may be found. Amen.